Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. We turn to the letter of Romans in the ninth chapter. In this piece of the letter, Paul is speaking to the sovereignty of God. Paul has noted that God chooses his children not necessarily of flesh, but by children of the promise, and it is God's prerogative who his children are called to be by his grace and sovereign care. And so then we pick up in the 14th verse and hear these words. So what then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or, or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you so that in my name it may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. You will say to me then, why then does he, does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one object for special, special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath to the, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction? And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Those who are able, Please stand for our second reading. Comes to us from the prophet Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1, listen now to the word of the Lord. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like a fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. 
as in the days of old as it, and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress hired workers in their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And then chapter 4. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out with leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to begin by saying thank you for the warm and wonderful uh, welcome and greeting that Joy and I have felt as being made a part of this congregation. Um, the lunch invites, the dinner invites, um, the emails, we're very appreciative of all that you have done to make us feel like this is home and like we are a part of the family. So thank you. Well, over the past year, we've been making our way through the story and up until this point, we've been in the Old Testament. In fact, in Sunday school, we discovered that it's March and we're still in the Old Testament. It's been a long time. And maybe some of you are like, are we ever going to get to the New Testament? Those are the good stories, the stories of Jesus. The Old Testament can sometimes seem long with its genealogies, its outdated customs or what seem to be outdated, its rules and regulations and laws, it can be tiresome. Well, the good news is the New Testament is almost upon us, but we need to spend one last week in the Old Testament, one last week to hear how this part of the story ends. Just like that great suspense movie, we have to watch it all the way to the end. Because if we turn it off early, we're going to miss that plot twist that makes everything else make sense. We don't want to miss that part of the story. And so next week, I promise if you come, Chuck will preach the New Testament. <laughs> but this week, we have to stick it out to the end and hear the end of the story, so that we can better understand the new. So where are we? 
Well, the Israelites are in exile. They are a scattered and shattered nation. Now, there have been moments of grace while in exile. Uh, The story of Esther comes to mind and her saving the people. Or the story of Zerubbabel leading a group back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. These moments of grace in the midst of exile. These are moments of great triumph for this dispersed people. These are moments of grace amid a time of sorrow and pain. And we too see these kinds of moments in our own lives. When life is difficult, when things are troubling, that word from a friend of encouragement comes to us as grace. That sun rise on the morning after it's been really cold and rainy comes to us as a moment of God's grace. That letter or call or text message from a friend when we've gotten a bad diagnosis comes to us as a moment of grace. We see these moments of grace all around us and just like the Israelites, they're exactly what we need. But the problem is, why did the Israelites need these moments to begin with? What's gone wrong? Why are they in exile? Why did God let His chosen people, the people who were to be a light to the nations, the people whom God had made covenant with, why were they separated from one another? And why were they separated from the promised land that God had given to them? They were in exile because somewhere along the way they had forgotten God. Somewhere along the way they had lost touch with Him. They'd forgotten what it meant to be the chosen people. They'd forgotten what it meant to be the covenant people. They had lost their love for God. And we know that feeling too, don't we? That feeling when at first we love something so deeply And it means so much to us. But over time, the shine wears, the love fades, and we don't really remember why we loved it at all, whether it's a relationship, or a hobby, or a job, or when you're a teenager like I was, that new video game. It just came out, I can't wait to have it, and I spend all my time playing it with my brother until I've beaten it. I love it! And then, once I'm finished with it, it sits collecting dust in a box in my mom's attic that I've been told I need to come and clean out. (laughs) We lose love. We lose it. And just like the Israelites, they lost their love for God. Now along the way, God's reminding them and trying to bring them back These moments of grace that we just spoke of are moments where God calls the people back. But but it's too late. The damage is done. We know that Israel is in exile. That they've lost that first love. And last week we took a break from that story of exile to be reminded by Bishop Ondiak to stand up and to look at what God is doing in the world. 
to listen for where God might be calling us and to go. What a great challenge, especially on our Global Missions Conference week, and a challenge that rings true to our story this morning. We know that Israel's in exile, but a remnant has returned home, and they've begun a rebuilding project to rebuild the temple. And the Jews are safe because of the work of Esther in their exile. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. A cupbearer to the king named Nehemiah. He's curious. He's curious to hear how this rebuilding effort is going. And so he asks the king, what's the word? How's the remnant doing? And he finds out that while the temple is being rebuilt, the walls of Jerusalem lay in ruin. And so Nehemiah is presented with a challenge, with a choice. To ignore that this news that the city that he loves, the city of his people, is in ruin, or to go and do something about it. Many churches throughout our country were presented with a similar choice ten years ago. More than ten years ago now. Hurricane Katrina came and devastated many parts of the Gulf Coast. And churches and volunteer groups sent all kinds of people to help. And many churches a year later were asking the question like Nehemiah was, how is the rebuilding effort going? And the answer came back, slow. And so many churches, especially Presbyterian churches, all across the country answered the call to go and to rebuild. Both the churches that I served in Ohio and New Jersey did the same sending teams of adults and youth to help. They followed in the footsteps of Nehemiah. They went to rebuild the wall. The wall of people's homes and churches and businesses. And so, Nehemiah was faced with this choice. To go. Just like Bishop Ondiak challenged us last week. Now, it wasn't something Nehemiah planned on. It wasn't something he had been prepared for. It wasn't something he had trained for. He was a cupbearer to the king, not a structural engineer. And yet here God is calling him to go and to rebuild the walls. So he does. He goes. And he organizes the people, and he's so efficient at it that in just over 50 days, the walls are rebuilt. When I was reading that this week, and I couldn't believe it. Just over 50 days, the wall of the city is rebuilt without machinery, without cranes, without any of that. Just the hands of the Israelites. And because the wall is rebuilt and the temple is rebuilt, the Israelites can begin to hear the Word of God preached and proclaimed anew. And so Ezra, the priest, comes out with the Scripture and he begins to read and the people are so overwhelmed that they weep. For many of them, it's the first time they've ever heard Scripture read, being in exile. For many of them, they haven't heard it in a really long time. So they weep. They weep with joy at how beautiful the poetry is. They weep because they are aware of just how sinful they have been. And they weep because it's a story of God's goodness and faithfulness to them. They rebuilt the wall 
And now they begin to rebuild the wall of their spiritual lives as well. Isn't that a great story? Israel's back in the good graces of God. They heard, they built, they're living in the way that they should. And if only that were the way the story ended. But our scripture this morning reveals that that's not how the story ends. It's not how the story ends. The spiritual rebuilding project is cut short. The walls of their spiritual lives go only knee high. Whatever the case may be for why this occurred, maybe the economy turned south, maybe they ran out of money, but the buildings of their spiritual walk are only half finished. They forgot to listen to Scripture fully. They forgot to live as God had called them completely. They forgot again that they were the chosen ones called to live as a light to the nations. Now we might hear this part of the story and we might think the Israelites are crazy. I mean, they just saw God rebuild the wall. They did it with their own hands. They still have calluses from where they put the bricks up one by one. And yet, here they are forgetting again God's goodness and God's provision. It makes you want to scream and yell at them. Don't you remember what God just did? Can't you see the wall? Don't you remember the exodus? The giving of the law? The covenant with Abraham? King David? The prophets, one after another after another, who come to remind you of God's love, to turn you back to God. Don't you remember that even while you've been in exile, God has brought you moments of grace like Esther and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? But here you go, forgetting again. The problem is that the Israelites had short-term memories. Malachi tells us that the people had begun to intermarry, that they had lost the fear of the Lord, and that they were blaming God for their problems. In our Scripture reading this morning, God asks the question, return to me and I will return to you. And the Israelites' response is, How can we return? They've lost touch with God so much that they don't even know how to repent. It's a question that reveals that they've forgotten God. And the Israelites are not alone in their forgetfulness. They're not alone in their short-term memories. The disciples of the New Testament, as we will see in the coming weeks, are just like them. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a meager loaf and some fish. But the disciples find themselves in a boat on the sea and the storm is raging. And all they can do is cry out, Jesus, save us, we're going to die. They can't even remember that just a few hours ago, Jesus had fed 5,000 with nothing. They forgot that God incarnate, the Son of God, was in the boat with them. They had short-term memories. 
And I think if we're honest with ourselves, aren't we the same way? Don't we also have short-term memories? We forget all that God has done in our lives. We forget how faithful He has been over and over and over again. But when life gets difficult, when that relationship begins to fall apart, when an addiction that we thought we had overcome rears its head, when a a diagnosis doesn't go our way, we scream out, God, where are you? And we try to go it on our own. We forget God. And it really becomes a what has God done for me lately situation in the midst of the chaos and the storm swirling around us, we think not much and go our own way. When I was in high school, I went on a, uh, my dad was going on a mission trip to Poland with an organization called Youth for Christ that he works for. And, and a part of that organization called Project Serve would take students on mission trips they still do all over the world every summer. And my dad was leading a trip and my older sister, Becca, was getting to go and I really wanted to go. I thought, Poland, it's in Europe, I've never been there, it's got old buildings, that would be cool to see. I'm sure they have food that would be interesting to eat. And I get to serve Jesus too, that would be fun. I really wanted to go. But we didn't have enough money for both my sister, who was going to be a senior in high school, and I, who was going to be a freshman, to go. And being that she was older, she got first dibs. But I asked my mom, Mom, can I go? Can we find a way? And she said, sure, Nathan, let's do some fundraising. Let's see what we can do. And so we started to pray and we started to work. And sure enough, we raised more than enough money for both me and my sister. And I think back on that and I go, wow, God's provision is so amazing, isn't it? That was in May, April. The trip rolls around in July. And it wasn't as much fun as I thought it was going to be. I was a freshman, and the trip was made up mostly of juniors and seniors. And for those of you uh, who went to high school, which is many in this room, uh, think back on those days and remember how juniors and seniors treated freshmen. Not very well, right? Uh, I was picked on, made fun of, kind of just told to stay out of the way generally. And it wasn't a very much fun. I think back on that, and I remember praying to God one morning on that trip. It wasn't really praying, it was more whining. God, why am I here? Why did you bring me here? Right? It wasn't even, here I am blaming God for something I wanted. God had made a provision and I had already forgotten. Maybe you have a story like this where you had short-term memory and you forgot God's provision, God's grace. The reality is we forget God's grace all the time. But the good news that comes to us from Malachi is found in chapter 1, verse 2. This refrain comes to us. The very first thing that Malachi wants the people to hear before they hear anything else I have loved you. God tells the people, I have loved you. Before anything else, it frames the entire book. 
in all that is to come. And the reality is, maybe you're like me and you heard the reading this morning, there's some dark imagery. There's some troubling words in our Scripture passage this morning. But it's after I have loved you. I have loved you. When you forget me, I have loved you. When you disobey me, I have still loved you. In fact, I love you so much, God says, that I'm going to send a son. My son. And Malachi speaks in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of what God is going to do in the future when God finally sends the Messiah, the messenger, and sets all things right. Malachi's message to us this morning is a prophetic word, a word of something that will happen one day in the future. When all will be set right. When the world and our sin is finally dealt with. A day when the bleeding will stop. When the, the addictions will be overcome. Where the diagnosis will always be good. When relationships are reconciled. When injustices are no more. When the wicked are trampled on, Malachi says, and get what they deserve when pain ceases. On that day, Malachi says, it will be like the sun rising, where darkness can hide no more. It will be like a refiner's fire, turning a hunk of ugly rock into gold and silver. It will be like the fuller's soap, cleaning and bleaching, making those clothes with spaghetti stains and wine stains and chocolate stains clean and new. A day that will come when God reminds us, I have loved you. I do love you. I will always love you. However, Malachi doesn't get to see this day. His word is a word of preparation of what will come. Malachi's looking forward knowing that one day things will be different. It's dark right now, but the sun will rise. Maybe in five minutes, maybe in five hours. I don't know, but I know that the sun will rise. And so looking forward, knowing that the light will shine in the darkness. His words are words of preparation. Reminding the people one last time. One last time before God is silent for 400 years that God has loved them. And that they should begin to prepare themselves for that, for that coming. So we too have a chance to prepare for God's coming. Lent is almost upon us. We will celebrate Ash Wednesday this week. To begin the season of preparation. To prepare for Christ. And on Wednesday, we will put ashes on our foreheads. And we will be reminded that we are sinners. And we will be reminded that we are forgetful. But even as those ashes are spread, let us hear the refrain, 
I have loved you. And may this Lenten season be a time where we have long-term memories. Seeking spiritual renewal that remembers all that Christ has done for us in Jesus. All that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. May we open our eyes to the moments of grace that are all around us. And may you remember the refrain, I have loved you. Let it seep so deep within you that you no longer forget that God rebuilt the wall and will rebuild it over and over and over again. May we remember this Lent that there is nothing that we can do to separate us from God's love, as Paul reminds us. That it's God who loved us first. And that no matter how far we walk away from that, whether it's five miles or 5,000 miles, God's love for us remains. And may we remember that God is always with us and that God is calling us to be His people in the world. Let us not forget. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.